I always joke to friends that my real dream was to start the school of life. And I remember one guy at a party for whom I'll always be grateful. He says, well, you're always talking about this and joking and putting it in inverted commas. You know you're serious. Why don't you just do it? And it struck me dead because I thought, my God, he's absolutely right. I'm using an ironic defence. And what would be wrong with actually doing it? I often say there's no such thing as work-life balance. There's just a life. However, in the words of a more poetic person, there is no such thing as work-life balance. Everything worth fighting for unbalances your life. Now, these are the characteristically poetic words of today's uniquely talented individual. Not only an entrepreneur, but one of the few people in modern society we credibly recognise as a great philosopher. Alain de Botton is the founder and chairman of the School of Life, has best-selling books in over 30 countries with titles as wide-ranging as Religion for Atheists, to How to Think More About Sex, to The Pleasures and Sorrows of Work. If the topic exists in the real, everyday world, there's a good chance Alain will have a stab at trying to unpack its complexity in down-to-earth, accessible, and often funny prose that offers new insights and ways of thinking, often deeply rooted in warmly embracing the down, or rather, real sides to modern life. He has many recognisable quotes. Some of the more famous include... What is fascinating about marriage is why anyone would want to get married. We may seek a fortune for no greater reason than to secure the respect and attention of people who would otherwise look straight through us. And being content is perhaps no less easy than learning to play the violin well and requires no less practice. You know, I could tell you more and we could go on for ages, but we might as well just hear them all from the man himself. Straight from the horse's mouth and without further ado, welcome to the show, Alan. What a pleasure. Okay, so we usually kick off the show with some quick fire questions and what could be more fun for a podcast host to force a deeply thoughtful philosophical brain into quick, deliberate binary decisions. So before you can refuse, cats or dogs? Cats. Love or sex? Love. Favourite country? Switzerland. Favourite philosopher? Schopenhauer. Financial success or fame? Financial success. For profit enterprise or charity? For profit. Optimism or pessimism? Pessimism. And on that note, the most likely reason my marriage will fail. Pessimism. <laughs> Does everyone say that? Well, I'm so, I'm so, I, I can't say I've actually had the balls to ask that question to anyone else. It would have felt so out of context. People told me to fuck off. Okay, we're going to consider you warm. Let's start with the early years. So, Alain de Botton sounds like a well-recognized international philosopher's name, but you've spent a lifetime growing into that role. So, tell us who you were as a kid. What was your upbringing like? Where were you, etc.? Okay, so let's see how far back we go. Let's go really far back. My name's got nothing to do with France or Switzerland or anything like that. It's actually a Spanish name. It's a Jewish, uh, it's a Sephardic name. My father was uh, born in Egypt. Um, his family had been wandering around the Mediterranean for centuries, and uh, he came to Switzerland as um, as an immigrant and married my mother who was a Swiss Jew, which is quite unusual. So they were a sort of Jewish family living in Switzerland with an odd name and um, with an odd sort of Spanish name. And I grew up in Zurich and spent my first 12 years there. Very formative years. I adored Switzerland. I loved, I mean, as a kid, it's just paradise. It's, uh, you know, clean and safe and um, and just a very, a very sort of rooted country. It feels like things have been around for a long time. They will carry on for a long time. I remember coming, I came to England as a boy when I was eight, I was sent to boarding school there. And that was a big shock. And I just thought, God, what a crummy country this is. Um, it's taken me a long time to to love England. I still don't really love it, but I appreciate many of its qualities. And um, I can't remember what the question was. What kind of kid was I? Uh, I was a nerdy kid. I was a shy kid. I loved Lego. I loved building stuff. I was very creative. I played games all the time. I had an older sister, poor thing. She was roped into endless, endless schemes of mine to just every day I had a new scheme of some sort, um, inventing a country, um, making a play about something. I don't know. I just loved playing as, as a kid. And I've tried to make sure that my adult life is a continuation of playing. I think that people who are fulfilled in their working life, they do say it's a game. Not that it's silly or that it, you know, there's nothing at stake or that it's not hard, but that it has that quality that was there in the best moments of childhood. 
and what was your what was your family like? You've mentioned your your older sister who had to humour you a lot. So, how do you think your upbringing would have manifested itself into shaping your early existence? Well, it was a very entrepreneurial family. There was a respect for wealth creators. There was a great respect for people in business, and there was a sort of sense that um, the world was there for the taking. Uh, it was an optimistic family. The sort of feeling was you can go out there and do stuff. But at the same time, a very cultured family. So the notion that you'd be a success in business, but would be uncultured, this would be a serious problem. At the same time, the notion that you'd be just a sort of penniless poet was also problematic. So the kind of message from high command, parental high command was material and worldly success matters, but so does having a soul and being a cultured person. I suppose it was a sort of I don't know. Interesting difference between, say, the um, French-German business world and the UK. You know, in the UK, if you've you know made it in business, that's enough. In France and Germany and uh, other places too, you need to display as a status uh, thing a complete command of civilization. Um, that means you need to know about food and you need to know about what's on at the theatre and you need to read things. And you know you're not going to be complete unless you can show prowess in these areas. Now, some of it may be completely surface, but it's interesting that it is a, a criteria that is demanded of a so-called successful person in a way never really is in the UK. And what about in Switzerland? Same thing, you think? Same thing, same thing. Spain? Not, not sure. My experience oh, yeah, starts just, running just, out. Just the Spanish surname then. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I mean, our family left in 1492, so it's um, like... The and other, what was it like, like in 1492, <laughs> Well, it was a very multicultural place. I mean, the extraordinary thing was that, you know, the whole of southern Spain was under Islamic rule and Jews and Christians lived together and Muslims too. And it was the most sort of polyglot and um, diverse place one can imagine. So... We've gone backwards uh, yeah. a lot since yeah. then. Well, this is a man with a long memory, as you can tell. Uh, right, so my dad used to say he didn't go to university. He went to the school of life because he started working in business from the age of 16. So I'm pretty sure it didn't exist when he was young. So that does lead me to ask, did you rip the name off from my dad? Look, it was a name that was in the air uh, and it's been in the air for a long time. And he shouldn't have said it then, should he? No, yeah. no. But, I mean, it captures a very vital truth, really, which is that our education system, for all the resources we put behind it, is, has clearly got some holes in. And, you know, I had a so-called elite education. I went to, you know, good schools, good university, etc. But I always thought, hang on a minute, maybe the next stage I'm going to learn the stuff I really want to know. But it was never really on offer. I, I don't mean to knock my whole education and there were some wonderful teachers along the way, some wonderful professors, etc. But broadly speaking, I experienced a curriculum that was lacking in a lot of areas. And it deeply frustrated me. And I guess I was a, an adolescent and, 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 and a young man who really wanted to know very broadly the meaning of life. I, I wanted guidance in the big questions. I wanted to know why I was anxious, why I might be sad, what love was, how to secure love, what a good relationship was, what friendship was, what a satisfying career might be. I wanted to know all of these things. And really, there were very few clues in my education. You know, I learned more about you know, the potato crop in 16th century England, a subject we could come on to if you want, than in, you know, the, the workings of... Um, Desperately curious, obviously. <laughs> the, the, you know, the workings of, uh, of, of meaning in, in, in people's lives. So this always led me to think I would like to devote myself to a life of thought, but I'm not really happy with the current structures that are existent. So I finished Cambridge in 1991. I got a stellar degree and I thought, right, you know, I could be an academic. And I really thought about it. And I began two PhDs, one in Harvard, one in King's College London, gave up both. And it was all a very turbulent time for me. And broadly speaking, I had a problem with academia. These are the guys that have got huge funding to do the thinking for the rest of society. And in science, they do it brilliantly. Well, I think they do it brilliantly. I don't know, really. But in the humanities, there are serious problems. Because the guys who are supposed to be thinking about the big questions uh, are generally biting off tiny questions and drilling into them far too um, narrowly to provide the rest of us with, with sustenance. And so I remember one of my intellectual crushes at that time was Simon Sharma, who'd published a wonderful book called Landscape and Memory, which was a beautifully produced book and a wonderfully stimulating and kind of unorthodox book. And I went to see him in Harvard and I basically said, you know, Professor Sharma, what should I do? And he was not on TV in those days. He was fairly unknown outside of, you know, actually, no, he'd published Citizens. He was known. But, you know, he very generously said, don't go anywhere near academia. He said, and please don't take me as a model. He rather generously said, he said, I am an anomaly. You know, I'm one in 10,000 and they all hate me here. Don't do this to yourself. You know, you, 
you know, with a bit of imagination could go off and carve your own career. So, you know, with that sort of encouragement and conversations with others, I began a life as an independent author. And, you know, it happened very suddenly. I wrote my first book called Essays in Love when I was 22, published when I was 23. And very suddenly, I found myself contemplating the idea that I could live as an author. Uh, It's very striking. I mean, I still remember the first foreign deals coming in from Germany and from Korea, and, you know, fairly large checks for a young man, and thinking, God, this could actually be something. I'd never dared to imagine that I could be an author. But suddenly, you know, the evidence was perhaps I could be. And so I began writing, you know, for a general audience. And chewing off the big questions. And the first question I looked at was love. And it's still a question. I'm constantly thinking about relationships, how they work, etc. Let's stop there for a second. So how like, what experience as a 22 year old uh, man did you have with love by that point? What were you drawing on as your experience? Because you know, they always say, you know, write from experience. Uh, so were you writing from an experience or a lack of experience? Well, I think the best preparation for thinking very deeply about love is not to have a functioning love life. I mean, the, the really deep thinkers, and the deep thinking we do about love is always in response to pain. So had I hooked up with a fantastic person who you know, thought I was terrific and I thought they were terrific, age 17, I'd probably now be an architect. But as it is, um, as it was... You did write a book on architecture as I did, well, I so. did, I did. That's my other passion or an, another passion. But it was more because my love life was problematic than because it was so marvellous or so rich and multi-layered. So let's talk about, you know, love in, in the context of connection. Um, so, you know, going through your education, you started, you got to spread your wings at the Dragon School. What, what, what is that? Just you learn how to breathe fire? What, what is the Dragon School? Um, or is it, it just a cool name? It's a cool name. I think it's a cool name. Look, I think it's a, a very good school and, and probably some people have had um, some, some nice times at it. It's a boarding school um, and now a day school uh, in North Oxford. But, you know, I was a kid who spoke um, only French when I arrived. Literally, I spoke three words of English. Hello, how are you? This kind of thing. And and I remember the whole class giggling as uh, I was asked to describe the river that ran through London and said, it is the Thames. And uh, the whole class giggled because I'd spent so long learning how to do th. Uh, and then suddenly there was a river that, had, that was called a t. And that seemed very unfair. But anyway, I was a fish out of water, weird guy with a weird uh, name, no interest in football, um, having to get on with lots of um, other eight-year-old English kids. And, and it was a, you know, it was a, what it gave me was I'm now fairly good understanding other people who might be lost in a situation because I was so lost. So, you know, it came out in my writing from a very early, from the very start of my career, my books were translated in other countries and stuff that I was doing translated well. And I didn't try to do this, but I guess I'm always aware what's the thing that somebody else is not going to understand. Yeah, so that gave me a crash course. And, you know, this is sort of paints a, a picture to an extent of, you know, struggling for connection and friendship. Yeah. So is that a theme that ran through before you wrote this book? Is it a theme that's continued? How have you viewed connection and friendship throughout your life? I, I'm very interested in loneliness because I'm very prey to it. I'm very aware of the moments when, you know, you have a feeling, you have a, a worry, you have a vulnerability, and there's no one really around who can echo it or uh, be sympathetic towards it or be someone you can air it with. And um, similarly, when when you do have that person, that's the most wonderful feeling in the world to be able to take a, a vulnerability and and find an echo of it in somebody else. I mean, that is that is in a sense. A, key part of what one could park under the term love. And I've always missed that and felt I didn't have enough of it and hungered for it and looked out for it. And, you know, being a man in the UK, it's still it's hard. You know, us men still find it pretty hard to talk about most of the stuff that's that's really going on in our lives. I've always been somebody who got on instinctively better with women um, because for all sorts of reasons, women tend to be better at being vulnerable and hearing vulnerability and sharing their own vulnerability. So being in an all-male environment, which I was for many, many years in my education, was a serious trial. I mean, I can do football talk if forced, but it's not my natural forte, but I, I can do it. Can you give us your favourite football talk? Can you give an impression of Alain de Botton? And did you watch the game the other day, Alan? Yeah, I mean, it was terrific. I mean, the, the midfielders are fantastic, um, you know, mo- moving just with an agility that we've not seen in this country for, you know, five years. It's good, right? I mean, very good. I, I, I can I'm, do it. I'm I can do it. I can, I'm, I can be a Radio 5 Live. Yeah. And um, I'm bowled over. Yeah. Yeah. So you're not going to be writing a book on football. It should be a good challenge for you. I mean, actually. the interesting thing is that I've got two sons. Uh, the older one doesn't care about sport at all, and the younger one is a 
very, very talented football player. So every weekend, I now go around the country supporting him and no. um, and and watching him. And it's the strangest thing. I do, I do I chat to him often about how I could never have expected, you know, to have a, a football loving and, and very talented son. And he said, oh, that's just because you were traumatized at boarding school. Uh, and I said, yeah, maybe. Anyway, I'm very proud of him. And he's, um, you know, look out for him in the England squad in 2020. That is fascinating. Yeah. Is yeah. It, look out for Saul, Saul de Botton. He's, you know, he's, he's going to go back. That's crazy. So yeah. that must come from, you know, his mum's side, I, I, I um, would assume. Yes, I think, I think you, it's, so. yes, it's somewhere. Or an ancient, I think I had a distant, I had a few athletic relatives back in Egypt, I think there was. There was a guy who played tennis for Egypt. Really? You know, yeah, some, I, I don't know. But it certainly skipped me. I'm, I'm very not at home in my body. I'd like to get more at home in my body because I think it's something that one should aim for. But for all sorts of reasons. I was an incubator. My first six months were spent in an incubator outside of human touch and because I was very ill and, and almost didn't make it. But I think, I think that, you know, that's, that's had some sort of impact. That's why... Broadly, the joke is that I'm really just continuing in the incubator, sitting in a white room writing. Fair enough. Okay, so uh, we, we, we'll look forward to you co-authoring the book potentially with sort of yes, like later exactly. in life. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If you're trying to grow your startup and you're dealing with companies outside of the UK, you're probably going to need ISO 27001 at some point. It's not the sexiest acronym, but it's basically the global standard for proving your security practices are up to scratch, like how you handle customer data. The same goes with SOC 2. You're going to need it if you're a SaaS company. But achieving these security frameworks can be very tedious and very costly. This is where our partner Vanta comes in. Vanta automates up to 90% of the work for certifications like ISO 27001, SOC 2, GDPR, HIPAA, and more, getting you audit ready in weeks instead of months and saving you up to 85% of the cost. And as a special offer, our listeners get 20% off Vanta. Just head to vanta.com slash secretleaders. That's V-A-N-T-A dot com slash secretleaders for 20% off. There's a link in the description. Look, you know I'm fascinated by AI, but until the machines take over, there's only one thing that's going to determine your company's fortunes. People. This isn't some kind of hollow point to make me look good. If you speak privately to any successful entrepreneur, they'll confirm it's true. So, if you're a leader of a growing business, then you should check out Personio. It brings together all the important HR things like hiring, onboarding, payroll data, performance reviews, and so on. You don't want loads of employees sending you emails asking for time off. You want to be able to see things objectively, like it's taking you too long to hire. You want to do performance reviews well, having clear goals for people that are logged in a centralized system. And you want to do all these things in one simple tool without having to become an HR expert. All of this is possible with Personio. Check it out at personio.com forward slash secret leaders. That's personio.com forward slash secret leaders. There's a link in the show notes. In 2008, you founded the School of Life. So it's based in London. It's grown over the years to Paris, Amsterdam, Antwerp, Seoul, Istanbul, Tel Aviv, Sao Paulo, Berlin, Zurich, and Melbourne. Have I missed anywhere? Um, probably, but I can't probably. think of it. Fair yeah. enough. Now, um, in your own words, the School of Life offers an emotional education focusing in particular on the issues of work and relationships. So you touched on it earlier, but can you talk to us? You, know, you didn't really talk about the work side. So can you talk to us about what work and relationships actually means to you? You know, where that foundational principle comes from. So you talked obviously about your first book, mm. but, you know, in the context of the whole school of life, talk to well, us about what's missing. Let, yeah, let, let me just explain sort of how things got going. So I was a, a solo writer for most of my adult life, writing books for a general audience. And I wrote something like 15 books. And all the time I felt a longing for starting a community, working with other people and harnessing my strengths with the strengths of others. And um, But I was too sort of shy and, um, uh, you know, hesitant and didn't know if I could do it and thought maybe that's something that only other people do, etc. So it was a great kind of personal journey to discover that actually 
entrepreneurship and starting a company was something that you know was allowed but but you know i'm very sympathetic to why people might think that's not for me because that was the position that i was in i i you know very few people have come from a kind of writing arts background and and have gone into business in in any way and um, but i would i would always joke to friends that my real dream was to start the school of life and i remember one guy at a party for whom i'll always be grateful he says me you're always talking about this and joking and putting it in inverted commas you know you're serious why don't you just do it and it struck me you know dead because i thought my god he's absolutely right i'm using an ironic defense and what would be wrong with actually doing it so Anyway, in 2008, together with colleagues, friends, supporters, um, family, we began the School of Life. And it was a vague plan at the beginning, but but the, the mission is the one that's remained the same ever since, which is to essentially create an organization that would be a home for developing the tools for people to lead a more fulfilled life. Not a happier life because, well, we can go on for that, but at the School of Life, we don't really believe that life is made to be happy all the time. Well, that should be our goal. Our goal is fulfillment, which is, a, I think, a richer word that encompasses the possibility of pain and difficulty. But arguably happier is okay. Just happier, happy. exactly. Happier might be okay. But still, fulfilled is the, sure. is the one. And um, the plan was, let's create a community of like-minded people who can, we can harness our efforts and do a range of things, publish books, run classes, make films, run events, sell products, um, work with companies, etc., all in the area of emotional health and all in the, with the goal of a more fulfilled life. And we began very small and um, in a, a little shop in Marchmont Street, and we were three people in the back office. And very quickly, there was a lot of interest. The very name, The School of Life, you know, capture people's imagination. And we had a lot of people saying, oh, God, I've always always longed for you guys to exist. I'm glad you do. And we found that we were the subject of a lot of projections. A lot of people imagined that they knew exactly what we were doing and why we were doing it. It took us a while to actually go, hmm, maybe that's your idea, but not necessarily our idea. So we've had to sharpen up who we actually are and what we're really trying to do. At School of Life, we, 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 we think that actually one of the things you really need to hear, all of us really need to hear, is that problems are the central aspect of what we're going to encounter in life. You know, as the Buddha said, life is suffering. Now, that could sound like a grim starting point. It's actually a very useful, very humane starting point. If you say to people, you know, your life life's going to be difficult, your work life's going to be difficult, but it's okay. And the trick is to be able to articulate your feelings about it, communicate with others, build friendship and community around the difficulties. This is terrifically helpful. If you sell people perfection, you're going to have some very neurotic responses. And, you know, one of the guiding figures for the School of Life is this wonderful, very English, quintessentially, you know, the best of England, uh, psychoanalyst called Donald Winnicott, who was operating in the UK in the 50s and 60s, early 70s. And he was a child psychoanalyst, one of the pioneering child psychoanalysts. And many parents came to him very worried that they weren't doing a good job with their children and they were getting into terrible neurotic patterns, feeling that they weren't um, the right sort of parent. And Winnicott said to them, look, no child needs a perfect parent. Indeed, if you have a perfect parent, you're on the road to psychosis because the job of a parent is to disappoint the child, to gently break the bad news that the world cannot be as the child might want it to be, uh, culminating force in the greatest, most painful lesson of all, which is we all die. And the job of a loving parent is to break the bad news gently. And no child needs a perfect parent. What they need, Winnicott said, is a good enough parent. And that's where that expression, good enough, comes from. Um, he originally said good enough parent, but of course, we can stretch that to so many other things. Good enough friend, good enough lover, good enough business performer, etc. It's a welcome corrective to a punishing perfectionism, which otherwise can drive us to serious anxiety and despair. Okay. Now, I'm going to shift on to a different a different tack now. So, well, before we move on, you know, I did, did touch on the school of life, the ups, the downs, but we didn't really hear any downs mm. yet. So what has been the most stressful experience in running the school of life? What is the moment? There must have been a moment where you're like, this is not going to make it. This is all ending. My fucking world is over. You know, the normal humane experiences that go on. I think one of the most 
one of the biggest challenges is working with other people and realizing that their happiness and their contentment in the workplace is absolutely essential. And just particularly in your line of business. Yes, yes. But I think, you know, that and needing to get the company aligned and um, communication to work well within the company so that, you know, I think some of the most dispiriting experiences is, is, um, you know, I've had, we've had situations when, you know, I thought so and so was having a really good time and really growing and, and, and enjoying their job. Etc. And then they would hand in their resignation two days later, and I, I would take it so personally. And I would just think, what, what have I done wrong? It's taken me a long time to realize. I know it sounds silly, but it's taken me a long time to realize that people don't always resign because of something you've done. They've got their own life and their own vision of where they're going, and they may want to, you know, develop in in other ways. But I'm. I like to feel that the school of life is somewhere that you can work for a long, long time, and that you know we'll look after you, and you know you'll look after us, etc. And and it's it's taken me by surprise that many people, particularly younger people, see you know jobs as as, as enriching experiences. It's not you're not there for life. You're you're there to have a good time for a few years, and you know contribute and 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 share your skills, and uh, and then it's no tragedy. You move on. And it's taken me a while to think. Okay, all right, I can work with that. But but for a long time, I didn't really see it that way. So that's been a real challenge. Also, you know, for a long time, our, you know, we were losing money in lots of areas, and I couldn't really understand it. And, and, and there was... Did you ever take funding? Well, we took funding at the very beginning. But, you know, what would tend to happen is, is something like this, that we would, the sales would look good. We had lots of people through the door. It looked like we were making money. And then you sort of added up the accounts at the end of the year, and actually, we were losing money. And I thought, how come? You know, and so we really um, had to do sort of crash course in, in economic company, you know, financing, and, you know, operate with um, terms that were very peculiar to me, like uh, profit margin, you know, that um, it all depends on your profit margin. So you've got to look at, you know, not just the money that's coming in, but the money that's going out and, you know, reconciling the two, etc. So just skilling up in some of the disciplines of uh, running a business. And and I admire those disciplines so much now, you know, we, we've got a financial team. And, you know, I, I look at these guys as, as wizards, because they do stuff that I can't do. And, they're keeping their eye on on something that I know now is the the lifeblood of things. I mean, if this you know clogs up, there are problems there. The whole thing falls apart. You know, you can have the best psychotherapists in the world. You know, we've got a wonderful psychotherapy service, and you know they're they're, they're at the front line of sort of solving people's most intimate emotional problems. But these guys are not going to survive if the financial team are not doing clever things with with uh, you know invoices and taxation and all the rest of it. So so the two really are symbiotically uh, connected. Now, coming back onto something you are more comfortable or better known for, I guess, especially as how you would describe yourself, potentially, uh, you seem to have a relentless drive to create. And as you're talking about right here, you seem to churn out as many books on profound ideas as anyone really around. I mean, you know, generally, it takes around two years to write a book, so they say, but you're certainly not 60. And you've got over 30 books. Is that right? Yes. I mean, Okay, a weird thing happened when I started the School of Life. Actually, about um, four years ago, we suddenly thought, what about if we started a publishing house in the School of Life? So we started up this thing called the School of Life Press. And we thought, all right, who's going to write the books? And I said, oh, I'll put up my hand. I'll, I'll write some books. Um, and- Do you reckon internally they had a bet on me? Like, how long, how long before Alan just sticks his bloody hand up? <laughs> I know, I know, I know. Anyway... I started writing. I, I've got a, a wonderful collaborator, a very terrific guy called John Armstrong, who's based out in Australia. Uh, I've written a book with him on art already. So we started working together. And then we had other colleagues chipping in ideas as well. But um, we now write tons and tons of books. They're quite small books, um, often not more than about 20,000, 30,000 words. But we write a lot of them. And okay, here's an interesting thing. When you don't put your name on a book, it's so much easier to write, I find. So much of the hesitation and sort of crippling anxiety around writing, which gums the whole thing up, is thinking, ooh, what happens if I'm judged? What happens, you know, et cetera? And it can stop sentence by sentence. I think we all know that the mind is sometimes more agile and fluid than it's able to be when the pressure is 
on, sometimes late at night or lying in a bath or on a train, you know, you feel that your mind is able to kind of see things and intimate things and, and work at a, at a kind of speed and in an untrammeled way. And then you sit down and it's nine o'clock in the morning on a Monday and you think, oh, my goodness, I'm so scared. I can't do anything. I can't think. Fear is the biggest inhibitor of fruitful mental activity. And, you know, we were talking about play earlier. How can you return something to the state of play? How can you remove the fear? Because if you remove the fear, it's not the work gets sloppy. I mean, there could be that danger, but I don't think it's an active danger in a sort of functioning adult. The greater danger is that you're gummed up with, with anxiety. So by removing the name on books and by, by speaking as part of a collective and by having kind of collective responsibility, an idea we nicked from The Economist. Um, come back to that if you want in a minute. But it's really liberated me. I've written a cookbook now. I've written children's books now, etc. And the great thing is, I don't make a big song and dance of it about it. I don't, you know, go and do lots of broadcasting, etc. But this is my work. And it's work that's, you know, taken months rather than years. And I still don't quite understand it. But I'm now producing more words a day than I've ever done. And so much of it is because I've taken my name off it. And it's, it's, I can't quite understand it. It's fascinating. And you once said enough romanticizing about creativity, it's about work, confidence, endurance, courage, and appetite for suffering. And, uh, you know, as you are a well known football fan, uh, it reminds me a lot of a famous Thierry Henry quote, uh, when he was asked about how he became the most talented footballer in the world. And he just scoffed and said, there is no such thing as talent, there's just practice. Yes, I mean, you know, the interesting thing is, what is the practice that is necessary? There's a wonderful quote from the American 19th century essayist, uh, Ralph Waldo Emerson, where he says, in the minds of geniuses, we find once more our own neglected thoughts. In the minds of geniuses, we find once more our own neglected thoughts. I love that quote. That quote is absolutely central to me. What it says to me is that all of us are so-called geniuses. In other words, we have high-powering minds. The reason a lot of the time why we're not geniuses is fear, inhibition, a neglect of our own deepest impulses. And I think that a lot of what good thinking is, is not just sort of called hard work, but it's, it's stripping away um, fear, but also habit. We're often in the habit of not being properly in touch with what we actually think and feel. It sounds weird because you think that we would have a direct connection with what we think and feel. But a lot of what goes on wrong in writing, if you set somebody a, a challenge, you know, write an essay about you know, what it's like to fall in love. A lot of the time, people won't actually be using their own data, their own experience. They'll be resorting to secondhand models of this, and it will feel a bit fake. And I think that when you read a, a good piece of writing, you're thinking, yes, that's it. That's actual experience. It's actually more you than you. And it's almost like somebody's gone into your head and told your secrets for you. And they haven't really. It's just that there's a layer of authentic feeling and experience, which most of the time we're cut off from. So when people go, you know, how's your holiday? Great. How's your holiday? Oh, great. You know, it's lovely. You know, actually, is that how a holiday is? Or are there lots and lots of other things going on? You know, if we can just try and grasp some of those feelings and hang on to what we're actually feeling, we're going to be much further along the road towards what you could grandly call genius or just, you know, good thinking um, than, uh, than relying on secondhand accounts. Uh, okay, look, coming on to some of your latest work, you actually mentioned it earlier, but I was pretty surprised, if not delighted, to discover that you and I share a common interest. So, as you know, my new company, Heights, is on a mission to make brain health and cognitive performance simple with a mix of nutrition and educational content on how the brain works. So apart from our launch product, the Smart Multivitamin, packing the key nutrients your brain needs to thrive on a biological level, as an organ... I write a newsletter that goes out every single week with brain food recipes because I used to have no separation or understanding at all about how different the mind and the brain are and how the brain itself as an organ needs this sort of neurological nourishment. So when I saw on Instagram last week that you'd published a book called Thinking and Eating, I was wondering, and I've been waiting and looking forward to asking you this, have you had a similar revelation? Has there been a moment in your life that's led to you understanding that? Or does it all seem pretty obvious to you that you are what you eat and therefore that applies to your mind as well? Okay, let's rewind even further back than that. It all for me starts with religion. I was astonished when I started to look at religions. I read a book about religions and, and 
I realized that the foremost educational machine in modern society is religion and has been throughout history. You know, religions are the guys who educate. And they've been terrifically successful, whether it's in the Buddhists or the Hindus, or the Christians or the Jews, etc. They are running amazingly successful schools. Now, you may not agree with most of what they teach, and I don't. However, I deeply admire some of the creativity that they display in trying to get their lessons across. And I think the secular world has a lot to learn. One of the things that many religions know is that we are embodied creatures. In other words, we are not just minds, we are also bodies or brains, if you like to put it that way. And that means that the way in which we function is hugely determined, not just by what we're reading and thinking, but also whether we're singing, how we're sitting, um, what the architecture is like, what kind of food we're eating, um, how we're sleeping, uh, what kind of clothes we're wearing, uh, what our community situation is like. And religions have involved themselves as educational establishments in all those facets. So, you know, what's a church? It's just a place to try and make um, the lessons that this particular school is trying to teach us more vivid. You know, why do they build St. Peter's in Rome or Chartres Cathedral, etc.? Is because the thought is, with a certain kind of architecture, certain ideas become easier to absorb. And, you know, if you look east, you know, Zen Buddhism um, suggests that one of the ways to imbibe Zen's teachings around uh, the transience of all things, the importance of friendship, the uh, the fragility of goodness, is to sit down with friends and have a cup of tea in a ritualized setting, green tea, brewing in a certain way in a tea hut in a rural setting. And this was so fascinating to me that a religion would get interested in how you're drinking tea. Because in the West, of course, drinking tea is just something, I don't know, it's just like a sort of banal habit that you might do. But to say, no, hang on, we're going to absorb that into a ritual. We're going to think about the making of tea. And we're going to use that educationally was fascinating. And so what I've tried to do at the School of Life is to suggest that as we are an educational establishment, we should always be thinking of the slightly unusual ways in which people get educated. And so quite naturally, food started to become an area of interest. And so, as I say, as you say, we've written a cookbook called Thinking and Eating. And it's it's really a, a look at different states of mind and the foods that would most uh, appropriately underpin them. We're not really working at a kind of biological level. It is, it is a work of psychology, not biology. So we're looking at, for example, the lemon. The lemon interests a lot. The lemon interests a lot because the lemon is a, it's a fruit around which people have a lot of um, strong feelings. And it's really a, a symbol of, of hope and of uh, heat. It's a kind of compression of traits of character that we need, you know, not just on our fish or on our plate, but also in our minds more broadly. And, and I think all foods are in different ways suggestive of a way of life. And so, you know, the, the challenge was, what could you be eating? What could you, how could you be arranging your diet if having a certain kind of philosophy and certain kind of outlook is your goal? And so that's what we've tried to do. But, you know, in the future, I would love us to look at other things, exercise, how we arrange the interior of a house, how we, you know, inhabit space. We've written a book about traveling. We've written, you know, we're... We're looking at the body more broadly and its and its role in education. So you're, you know, skipping on to what you're currently doing. You've just released two new books called How to Think More Effectively and How to Get Along with Your Colleagues. So starting from the top, how does one think more effectively? I think it's understanding how our best thoughts come to us, tracking that process very carefully and trying to get more systematic. So it's like the move from... Um, foraging to agriculture. You know, when you forage, you're, you know, you're amazed that you found a strawberry under a, a leaf. And, uh, you know, you, you love that strawberry, but you don't quite know how it came about. And you have no sense of um, how you might realize it in a more systematic way. When you move to agriculture, you know, there are seeds you can plant, there are ways, processes, etc. And there are some similarities with what you might do in areas of thinking. So it's really about watching how you've got to the thoughts that you're proudest of and then reverse engineering to trying to make a life where that's more likely to happen. One observation that, that one makes is um, many of our greatest thoughts come to us when we're not trying to think. 
And this is very odd. You know, why is it that you can sit and, 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 and try to work something out and then it's when you go in the shower that the thought comes to you, what's going on there? And sometimes we sort of shrug our shoulders and whatever. No, I mean, shower thinking is something you should really think about. Why is it that there are really, really good reasons why our thoughts come to us on trains and in showers and cafes, etc. As I said earlier, there's an anxious part of the mind that is very scared of new ideas. Every new idea carries with it a charge of anxiety. Because even if it's a very good idea, it will carry with it a suggestion of something you need to change in your life. It might be that you need to have a difficult conversation with a colleague. It might be that you need to head out and start a new kind of life, etc. So because our minds are very keen on maintaining kind of stability, and they privilege stability over growth often, the process of, of developing our thoughts on things is intermittent. And there is one side of us that would like us not to have very good and creative thoughts, because it just keeps everything calm. But if we're really ambitious for ourselves, as I think we should be, we should try and let in some of those difficult thoughts. So how do you do that? Well, make sure that you're structuring in, building in to your thinking process, moments when it doesn't matter, in inverted commas, what you think, because when it matters a lot, you never have the good thoughts. And it doesn't matter in times that are interstitial times, you know, times in between things when you are, let's say, only having a bath, or only taking the train to your meeting, but that's the moment when the thoughts going to come. And I think the mind loves nothing more than to be able to focus on one thing, that has to it an unchallenging, slightly repetitive nature. And that leaves another more creative side of the mind free to produce its fruits. So that's why trains are good when there's a long view. Uh, there might be you know, trees intermittently crossing the horizon, just enough to keep things in focus, browsing the landscape while uh, another part of the mind can secrete its, its deeper thoughts. Some of the same qualities in a cafe. When people say, you know, I like being in a cafe, you don't want an overwhelming cafe where there's so many people you can't think, you know, there's no space inside your own mind. But it's, you know, you can be at the back, you can, there's a hubbub around, that relaxing hubbub, nothing's expected of you, you're just here hanging out. And yet, um, there's just enough distraction for the really creative thought to emerge. I couldn't agree more. I went to a cafe yesterday to do this interview, to write it up and research it, because it just, you know, felt much more appropriate to me than sitting in my home. And there's actually barely any difference. But you're right. It's just sort of It's less frightening. It's, yeah. it's odd to speak of fear in relation to creative thought. But I think we really have to budget for fear. Hmm. Any good idea is frightening because it's going to upset habit. And we are creatures that love to settle in habit, but habit's also our greatest enemy. So how to get along with your colleagues is your other book. I guess the reasonable question is, what do your colleagues say about you? How do you think you are as a colleague? I think they probably find me a little bit eccentric and possibly a bit mad, um, but hopefully benignly so. But they probably think I'm, you know, ooh, there he is again with a new idea. I think there's a lot of eye rolling when I pitch up with a new idea. But look, hopefully we all get on and I very much respect them. And hopefully they at least tolerate me um, on a good day. But one of the things that School of Life does is to work with companies. And um, yeah, we've got the business division. Now we've well. got a business division yeah. that, that um, goes into and it's something that began quite early on in our life, we found businesses coming to us going, look, you're doing all this on mind stuff and it's emotional intelligence and fulfillment stuff. Could you come and help us? And so we grew a division and it's now really huge. And it's a big part of what we do. We go into companies and we help them with all the stuff that we do in the civilian bit, but with a particular focus on kind of business uh, related problems. One of the things that we really, really stress is that the concept of being a professional is at points an extremely unhelpful one. Because we understand why it comes into existence and there are limits to the degree of vulnerability and um, nakedness that you can show in a work environment. However, budgeting in some of the complexities of what a real human being is like and making that seem unsurprising can allow for very vital information to surface in a company that if you don't allow it to surface will blow up on you. You know, so we all know the sort of quiet performer that never makes it fast, etc. And then one day, you know, quits for, you know, no explicable reason, etc. And if you're able to say, Look, if anyone needs help around here, that's okay. Not knowing is fine. Making errors is fine. Being a bit of an idiot is fine. We all are. That has to come from the top in an organization. You know, one of the most you know, relieving and alleviating things is for those at the top to say, we make mistakes all the time. And here are five that I've made this week. We do this a lot in school. I've literally, it's like, what mistakes? Oh, I've done this wrong, that wrong. What have I learned from it? And also, 
I'm scared. Uh, certain things make me anxious. And I'm a bit of an idiot at points. I mean, literally, if, if you wanted to help an organization to function better and for fear, to, because, you know, we're talking about fear and its role on thinking, this happens writ large within organizations, particularly large organizations with hierarchical structures. People get terrified of their own best insights. And so locked into people's brains are clues as to the future of the company that, you know, could be revolutionary. And I often found, you know, at the School of Life that we'd have quite a sort of boring meeting and sort of standard meeting where everybody would do the expected thing and we'd be trying to think up a solution and everybody would come up with a sort of respectable answer. And then we'd go and have lunch or go and sit in the pub or something. And then suddenly somebody would actually solve the problem in a far better way because suddenly it doesn't matter so much anymore. No one's, you know, someone just tosses out the, you know, an answer and sort of laughs because it's so silly. But no, 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 it's not at all. It's the idea. Mm. And so we found this so much that the advice to companies is to bake in this sort of um, moments when the stakes are low, but the upside could be huge in terms of new ideas. Talk to me about fear then. What is your deepest fear that someone you work with might say about you? What's the worst thing in your mind that someone could think about you? God, I mean, there could be so many things. I mean, broadly speaking, the, the thing that I would find painful because it wouldn't feel fair would be the thought that they maybe would sort of think that I was cynical about what I was trying to do or what we were trying to do. And it's not true, but perhaps somebody could come along and go, you know, I don't know whether you're putting your your sincere passion into this, but um, I think that would be painful. Um, and, and more broadly speaking, then outside the school of life, what is your deepest fear? Hmm. I mean, I think that one of the things that we know about life is how quickly catastrophe could come. You know, it's something that I picked up from the Stoic philosophers of ancient Rome. They were obsessed by sudden catastrophe, death, but also disgrace, error, political collapse, earthquakes. You know, we live in a world where there's long periods of stability and things seem to be incrementally getting better and safer. And, and we have that approach in our own lives that we try and make things stable, etc. But we are all of us open, hugely open to accident. There are things that can come along and destroy everything, everything in a heartbeat, most obviously our health and the health of our loved ones. I mean, we are all, you know, a stroke away from being in a vegetative state. And, you know, it's a blocked artery. And it can happen at any age. And it can happen to anyone. Now, once we really focus on this, I mean, imagine the, the anxiety that could be there about being a parent, for example, this could happen at any time, you could be incapacitated, someone you love could be incapacitated. But really, you know, we are constantly open to accidents. So the older I get, the more I think, you know, if you've made it to dinner time and nothing appalling has happened, it's been a winner. You know, it's been a successful day. We do need to be aware all the time of just the scale of, you know, the volcano we're all dancing on. And it could be, you know, a financial disaster, somebody, you know, fraud, somebody I've known friends running businesses they thought were very successful and suddenly they were victims of fraud and very unexpected, you know, and the whole thing can collapse. I mean, it can collapse within 24 hours. Similarly, illness can hit you. All these things can hit you. So is your deepest fear surprise? Catastrophe. catastrophe. I think catastrophe. Okay. Catastrophe. I'm sad that we have to start wrapping up uh, <laughs> urgently now, really. Um, otherwise, my editor is going to have a fucking field day with me. He already <laughs> gets very irritated with me in the first place. What's the most shameful moment in your life and what did you learn from the experience? The most shameful moment. I've lost my temper. I lost my temper with my children in shameful ways in the past. I think when they were... It was a sort of particularly difficult stage when they were quite small and life was really hard and the business was hard and a small child is not a creature of reason. And, you know, sometimes I remember sort of moments when they would just keep asking for something or keep pressing something or keep doing something that I told them so many times not to do. And, you know, I remember losing my temper a few times and wishing that I hadn't. I, I do ask them now if they're traumatized. Um, and uh, they say yes, and they would like help with their psychotherapy fees. I mean, we joke about this. Yeah, I was but say. but we, we, we budget in that, of course, they've had bits of their childhood that are not, not going to have worked. But the best thing is, you know, knowing about it. 
Fair enough. And what is the most joyous day of your life for someone that you know doesn't necessarily believe in in, in joy or happiness in that respect? Are you able to uh, think about it? Yes. I mean, look, I think um, I'm capable of, of great joy. Um, I do love seeing the beauty of the planet that we're on. Um, often, you know, I live in London and it's a grey and hardworking city. And then occasionally I'll end up somewhere and maybe it's... Um, I remember waking up, flying to Australia a few years ago, to our branch in Australia, and opening the window blind and we were over the Australian desert and we'd been flying for three hours and had another sort of six hours to go over this desert and just thinking, you know, this fragile planet is the most beautiful thing and what an amazing privilege to be able to witness it in one very brief moment. I think that's a great answer. Okay, so for a man as with as many quotes as you do have and, uh, you know, there are endless sources of all the various quotes, what is... One of your favourites, not of your own, but just one of your favourite quotes. Well, one of my favourites is from the Roman philosopher Seneca, where he says, what need is there to weep over parts of life? The whole of it calls for tears. Wonderfully bleak and biting, but it's hard to listen to that without at least a small smile. And uh, you're on your deathbed. Your family is around you because it hasn't been completely sudden. What are your parting words? Appreciation. And finally, if you possessed a magic wand, how would you rearrange the world? Orient it in a more determined way towards the real sources of fulfilment, which we know are there, but we often don't work back from those sources to build the kind of institutions, businesses, governments that are most likely to do what we know will work in terms of delivering satisfaction. Very beautifully put. Thank you very much, Alan, for your time. Hope you've had fun. Thank Not you. Not too much fun, of course. No, I hope no. it's been a melancholy delight for you. It, absolutely. <laughs> Pretty perfect. Thank you. Thank you. Here at Mindset Win, we want to give you the tools to become better at what you do. Taking inspiration and wisdom from our guests, we will hear stories, strategies, tips and tricks. Told by leading names in sport and beyond. Who know what it takes to get to the very top. There will be two episodes each week packed with amazing stories and practical takeaways for us all to follow. Search for Mindset Win on YouTube and on your favorite podcast app. Next week on Secret Leaders. If a lot of these businesses that we lend to, these are proven businesses, they're not startups, they want to get debt funding to grow, by not providing them the adequate funding, they just don't have the chance to become the corporates of the future. So you end up in this world where you're just dominated by the existing large businesses and they just get multi-brand and they just dominate every part of your life. And actually, I think that's a pretty miserable life. That was Rishi Koshler, the founder of Oak North, which is one of Europe's most valuable fintech unicorns. They've raised over $1 billion, making them the darling of the fintech scene. Rishi is a rather special founder with a remarkable backstory of astounding accomplishments. I won't ruin the surprises, just be sure to listen in next week, so tune in or you'll miss out. We hope you enjoyed this episode. It was brought to you by me, Dan Murray-Serta, producer Rich Martell, Editor Harry Morton of Lower Street Media and marketing by Hannah Russell of Mags Creative and stunning visual design by our talented designer Christina Naru of SmartUpVisuals.com. You can check out show notes, transcripts and our upcoming live events on our website SecretLeaders.com. If you've not yet, please hit subscribe, leave us a review, tell a friend, take a screenshot of this episode and add it to an Insta story. I mean, you know what to do. And tag us at Secret Leaders or at Dan Murray Serta, and we'll add you to our story in appreciation back. Rich and I put together Secret Leaders for free because we love our day jobs as entrepreneurs, but every time someone takes the time to share it, it means a lot to us. So don't forget, it's the little things like that that keep us coming back every week and every year into the studio. See you next week.